following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. For our epistle reading, reading 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 13. Now, concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists, and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there are many, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge, since some have become so accustomed to idols until now they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So, by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their failing, I will never eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall. Thanks, Ken, for reading that very complicated passage of Scripture for us. You did uh, admirably well with it, and it's, it's one of those passages from the Apostle Paul that seems to be one long run-on sentence that's 13 verses long, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But first, uh, I've so enjoyed uh, seeing your responses in the chat to the questions that I ask. So I, I do want to ask you a question that you can answer in the chat. Now, this is a slightly less inclusive question in that only people of a certain age are allowed to answer it. Um, and you must only answer yes or no. And I would like you to answer truthfully. So the, the question is, if you were old enough to watch a PG-13 movie in 1999... Okay. Do you make the cut? <laughs> were you, yes or no, were you legitimately surprised by the ending of the movie, The Sixth Sense? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, with exclamation points. Yes, 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 yes. I love it. I don't have to accuse anybody, at least yet, of being a big liar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, someone ruined it. Okay, that's what I wanted to hear. Someone ruined it. Wow. Okay. 
But most people were completely surprised by the twist at the end. And yes, I am deliberately trying to avoid spoiling the end of a 21-year-old movie on the off chance that anybody uh, is out there who A, hasn't seen it, and B, hasn't had it spoiled for them, which is probably very few people at this point. Um, but we were all so surprised at the ending of that movie. We can remember it to this day. Maybe the chills that you got when that happened. Oh, but here's the thing. And I might actually try to do that this, this week. If you go back and rewatch the movie, like if you're a, an adult with kids who are old enough to watch it, maybe watch it with them. Here's what will happen. You will see all the hints that the director, M. Night Shyamalan, drops throughout the movie. And knowing what you know about how the movie ends, you will find yourself thinking, this is so obvious. Only a child could miss this. How did I ever get surprised by something so obvious? Uh, I was thinking about this this week. Um, by the way, uh, for those of you who who watched the movie for the first time after it was already spoiled for you, you probably don't see the the brilliance of this uh, this surprise because you knew all along. And this is exactly what I wanted to talk about because I was listening to NPR this week and they played an old episode of Hidden Brain, which is a great show. You can get the podcast of it. I think it was from 2018. And there was a, a psychologist who was had studied movies with twists as a way of trying to understand cognition, right? And one of the things that she mentioned was the uh, cognitive bias known as the curse of knowledge. I had never heard of this before, but when she explained it, it blew my mind. And it also kind of like totally made so many things make sense for me. So many experiences that I had had with knowledgeable people made so much more sense to me. And hopefully nobody's had these experiences with me, but I guarantee that they probably have. Have you ever been around a person who knew a lot and it seemed to be a curse rather than a blessing, right? Um, all the women in academia are going, uh-huh. <laughs> right. So the, the, the curse of knowledge is a cognitive bias that occurs when an individually, an individual unknowingly assumes that other people have the background to understand something that they don't understand. So the curse of knowledge when it comes to watching the sixth sense is that you already know the ending and you think to yourself, this is so obvious. How could anybody miss this? And yet read the chat transcript, like 50 people um, all yelled out. Yes, they were surprised by the ending of this movie. I don't think we saw a single person who said that they weren't surprised who didn't have it spoiled for them. Um, that's the curse of knowledge, right? So relatedly, I, I heard something recently about a company that offers retreats for people who want to get better at programming, right? Uh, and in the programming community, there's some, there's some um, problems with the curse of knowledge, apparently. And so at these retreats where students can go and get better at learning to program, they have a couple of rules that really stuck out to me. One of them is no well actuallys. Right? And, the, and another is no feigning surprise. Right? So a no actually is, uh, let's put it in terms of like Bible study, okay? 
uh, person A says to person B, oh, I was reading the book of Revelations this week, and it's totally blowing my mind, and I'm learning so much. And then person B says, well, actually, it's the book of Revelation, not the book of Revelations. John had only one revelation on the island of Patmos, not multiple revelations, right? That's a well, actually, <laughs> right? Um, some of you have been the victim of well, actually. And the other one is feigning surprise, right? So person C says to person D, where's the book of Genesis in the Bible? I can't find it. And person D goes, you don't know where the book of Genesis is, right? That's feigning surprise, right? Um, somebody told me not to act out that character ever again because they want to keep liking me. I'm just glad you liked me in the first place. Um, so have you ever had a well actually? Have you ever had somebody feign surprise that you don't know something that you just learned? How does that make you feel when someone treats you that way? Right. Um, it takes something which is which ought to be neutral, that is, just not knowing something, and it turns it into like this point of shame and embarrassment, doesn't it? Right. And can you imagine how much nicer the world would be if everybody followed these two rules, no well actuallys and no feigning surprise? I mean, it, it would be like suddenly the know-it-alls didn't even exist. I mean, they'd still be there, but we wouldn't know that they were know-it-alls. We would be unknowing about the know-it, I don't know. Um, Right, and Pastor Jesse just said this, and we didn't discuss this at all beforehand, but I love that she asked the kids and all of us to reflect on what the world would be like if all of the teachers were like Jesus. What if everybody who ever taught anybody anything was more like Jesus? That would be pretty amazing. So as odd as it might sound, knowledge is something that can wound Knowledge is something that can wound, and that is what today's passage from 1 Corinthians is all about. Now, I think this passage has um, some really poignant questions that it might cause us to ask of ourselves. But the problem is, it's, and this is so fitting for what we're talking about, this passage is actually kind of complicated and can be really hard to understand unless you have a certain base of knowledge. Right? So hopefully without doing any well-actually-ing of myself and without feigning any surprise at what you might or might not know, let me try to fill you in on some of the knowledge that I have about what's going on in this passage before I get to those poignant questions that I think we want to ask ourselves. So first of all, if you were following along on the screen, you noticed perhaps that there are a number of quotation marks in, um, in the passage. And by the way, they're quotation marks, not quote marks. Quote is a verb and quotation is a noun. Oh, sorry, I'm well actually in you. <laughs> um, but you saw those quotation marks in the text. And uh, the problem is we don't know what's being quoted or why. And, and the interesting thing is we don't always know where the quotations begin and end because they don't exist in the original Greek text. So the editors have tried to discern when an author is quoting something, when that quotation begins, and when it ends. Right? And if it's very obvious, like it's a direct quotation from Scripture, they can put a little footnote in there. But sometimes it's not obvious where it came from. 
right? And so we don't know where the quotation marks stop and, and end or start and end. We're not always sure what the original source is. And most challenging of all, sometimes when uh, the author of this text, presumably the Apostle Paul, is quoting something, he's quoting it as support of his argument. Other times he's quoting something that he wants to refute. <laughs> and still other times it's kind of in between where he's saying, this is true, but not in the way you thought it was true. Right. And <laughs> none of it is clear in our English Bibles. We just kind of have to try to figure it out. I'm seeing that there's all kinds of great stuff going on in the chat. I'm just like, I'm going to turn it off until I need to ask you a question again, so I can't even see it. Um, <clears throat> so first of all, we have to deal with that and we can just do our best. But as to the subject matter, here's the thing that's important to understand. A chief concern for faithful Jews which means it's also a chief concern for the early Christians, was avoiding idolatry. So for their entire existence, the Israelites had been fighting against this tendency of outside religious traditions, so-called pagan religions, to seep into their own religious practice and corrupt it somehow. Now, there are many problems with that they, they saw with these pagan traditions seeping into their tradition. But by far the biggest one is the idea that the Israelites had received the revelation that there is only one true God, what we, we call this monotheism, right? Everybody else around them was polytheistic or pantheistic or um, something uh, like that. And uh, the, the Jewish view, and again, thus the early Christian view, is very strong on the idea that there's only one true God. And you see this battle against idolatry all throughout the entire Jewish law. There's rules about temple worship, obviously. Um, Sorry, did I just do one of the one of the problems again? I'm sorry. So there's definitely rules against uh, certain things in temple worship, but there's also rules about farming and the way you care for your livestock. And there's rules about sex and marriage. And there's even rules about something as benign as the type of uh, fabric that you make your clothing from. Okay. So you can hardly find a piece of Jewish biblical literature that does not somehow express this concern, either explicitly or implicitly, about idolatry and avoiding pagan worship practices. And very importantly, for our purposes, this carries over into Christian practice and into early Christian literature. Some of you have heard me preach on the um, the book of Acts, chapter 15, when the early Christians have this important meeting and summit to decide how much they should require of Gentile converts to Christianity, how much of the Jewish law they should be required to follow. And in this quite beautiful um, decision, they basically say, almost none of it. We're going to impose almost none of the Jewish law on these Gentile believers. The one category of things that they sort of carry over as restrictions are the ones that have to do with pagan temple practices. Now, it may not be immediately clear from the very brief list in Acts 15 that that's about temple, um, pagan temple worship, but it's my belief that all of those restrictions have to do with pagan temple worship. Anyway, that's a little bit of a side trail. So this, this 
Christian uh, objection to idolatry was of particular concern in the church in the Roman city of Corinth. And now you can feel me kind of bringing us back to today's text, can't you? So when we read the letters that were written to that church in Corinth, we find all kinds of topics that are somehow in the orbit of the idea of avoiding idolatry. I actually think it's similar to Acts 15, where it's not always clear uh, explicitly that the problem is idolatry. It seems sometimes like the author is uh, speaking against a specific practice that we wouldn't necessarily assume has anything to do with idolatry, but very often it does. And um, that just is a result of the fact that we don't actually have a whole lot of pagan temple worship happening in our society today that we can use as a a foil, right, to think about Christian practice in light of. So in today's passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the specific concern is about food, um, and uh, particularly meat that has been sacrificed to idols. And that is something that would have happened in the Corinthian temples. Now, first of all, I think that we have the wrong idea about sacrifice, most of us. We think of, um, at least I always have thought of sacrifice as, um, you know, they, they would bring an animal and slaughter it and burn it up on the altar. Right? I think it's because of that one very extreme story uh, where the altar is totally consumed by fire in the, uh, you know, the the rap battle that the prophet has with all the uh, all the other prophets of Baal. At any rate... I think what's my understanding is that what's much more common, both in Jewish and in these uh, other um, pagan temple practices that used sacrifice, was that the uh, the the animal was sacrificed, but then it was actually used as food, right? So it wasn't completely destroyed. Um, <clears throat> it was actually used as food. So in in the case of um, the Corinthian temples, what would have happened is that there would have been a ceremonial banquet uh, where the food was consumed, this meat that had been used in this um, sacrifice, and it would have been attended not just by, this is really important, it would have been attended not, attended not just by the religious people and the priests, but by important people in the city and the culture. It was a place to be seen. It was an occasion to network, perhaps. And then any meat that was not used in the banquet was uh, allowed by a specific Roman law to be sold in the marketplace where ordinary citizens could buy the meat and eat it just for dinner. Do you see how this might become a problem for the early Christians who were particularly worried about the influence of pagan worship practices seeping into their religion? So the the Christians in the city of Corinth, as in many of the Roman cities, had a whole list of ways that this could be problematic. So they might decide, uh, as good, faithful Christians, that attending these banquets at all was inconsistent with their commitments to monotheism. And so it wouldn't be worth the social benefit of being around the important people of their their city. That's one thing they might decide. They might decide that Um, They could attend the banquet, but they would abstain from eating the meat, right, as sort of a protest act, because they didn't want to be defiled by um, by this practice that had happened. They might decide, if they weren't going to do either of those things, that they wouldn't eat 
or buy any of the meat that had been sacrificed to idols and then had made its way to the market, or if they were really trying to avoid even a trace of possibility that they'd be exposed to pagan idolatry, they might go completely vegetarian. Just in case uh, any of the idol meat made its way into the, you know, the case that had the <laughs> unmarked, you know, it would maybe it's unmarked idol meat and it made it into the non-idol meat section of the grocery store, right? So there's this long list of ways that Christians might decide to avoid idolatry with regard to the meat that they eat or didn't eat, right? And then, of course, this is my favorite group, <laughs> There are those who knew that the Christian religion was one of freedom, one of grace, one of salvation, not by the things that you do or don't do, but by the free gift of God. And so one viable option for mature Christian believers who understood this new reality was to eat whatever they wanted. Yay! Freedom in Christ, to borrow a phrase from our tradition. But there's just one problem with that. All of these people lived in community with everybody else. So these mature, enlightened, knowledgeable believers existed in a community with other believers, all kinds of believers, and not everyone had come to understand this new reality just yet. And so that's what today's passage is all about. It's probably one of the longest bits of background I've ever given about a scripture passage, but it, I think it's really required to understand what's happening in this, um, in this passage. There's an instruction that Paul gives to the people who know more about the freedom that they have. And that instruction is that they might want to consider curtailing their knowledge in favor of being loving to those who might be, let's just say, younger in their faith. Now, the text uses the word weak and weaker, which I think is, is probably sort of has these connotations that might be more problematic for our understanding. So I'm just going to say maybe they're younger in their faith. He says, take care that this liberty of yours, and the, the word is actually authority of yours, take care that this liberty of yours, excuse me, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak or to those who don't know yet. And he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And what, what it literally says is that knowledge inflates and love builds. I love that. What a contrast. It's the, the difference between knowing something and loving someone is like the difference between building a wall with a steel beam or with a novelty balloon. This is not going so well for those of us who are proud of our knowledge, is it? And then Paul's conclusion at the end of this passage, which, I mean, let's be honest, it might be slightly bombastic. He might be using hyperbole to make a point, but maybe he's being literal. In any case, what he says is, if this is going to be a problem for my siblings in the family of God, then I will never, meet, eat, I will never eat meat at all. The point 
point is that love for your neighbor takes precedence over the exercise of your personal freedom. Every day of the week and twice on Sunday, as the saying goes. After all, what is the point of your freedom if it causes someone else to become more deeply enslaved? And then, not to put too fine a point on it, he says, by the way, Christ died for those people, those so-called weaker siblings. And that's the message of 1 Corinthians 8. So, as I said, I, I believe that this passage of Scripture might have some really poignant questions that we might want to ask of ourselves. And so I do want to spend a few minutes uh, as we close exploring what those questions might be and asking you to think about what your particular answers to those questions might be because, after all, we're all going to have a different experience with this text and we all might be feeling um, some leading from the Holy Spirit in a different direction. So, but before I get to those questions, what I want to do is reread the entire passage um, with some emphasis that I will add to it. Um, because if you heard it the, for the first time 10 or 15 minutes ago, it might have meant it's very difficult to follow. It might not have meant anything to you. And perhaps the background that I gave will give it some additional meaning as well. So what I'll ask is that our tech loft operator does not put the text on the screen. I would like you just to listen. However, if for an accessibility reason or any other reason you like to see the text, you can always turn on the live transcript in Zoom. And I believe that's available on Facebook as well. But otherwise, maybe just listen to these words. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge, end quote. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, no idol in the world really exists, and, quote, there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords in our culture, Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Quote, food will not bring us close to God, end quote. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you, who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged 
to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat, so that I may not cause one of them to fall. And here's my fear. I hope it doesn't sound braggy to say it, but Artisan Church is a very smart group of people. And we are also a group of people who rightfully take great joy in living into the liberating power of the gospel. There's a a whole bunch of people at Artisan who have left or perhaps even escaped from traditions that were very restrictive. People who are now enjoying the great freedom that they find in Christ. But we have to remember what the Apostle says. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge. Which certainly, to me, calls us to humility. And more importantly, the Apostle makes this distinction between knowledge and love. And it's not ambiguous about which one should win when those two things are pitted against each other. And so here are the questions for self-reflection for our community that I'd like to ask you to consider. And I'm going to ask them, and then maybe we can observe a few more minutes of quiet as you reflect on them and I reflect on them. All right. Here's the first question. Uh, what is something that you know that puffs you up, that inflates you? What is something you know that puffs you up or inflates you? Second question. What is something that you do that could possibly cause someone else to trip up? What is something you do that might just cause someone to trip up? And the third question. What is a change that you want to make in light of what we've read today? And finally, just to make it stick a little bit better, who will you talk to about these things this week? 
I offer myself. If you don't have anybody else, you can email me. Take a few minutes and reflect on these questions. I don't know about you, but I breezed through the first question and the second question, and I got to the third one, and I was like, I'm not really interested in that one. Not particularly interested in changing anything in my life. I think it's probably the responsibility of other people to gain more knowledge, <laughs> right? And perhaps there is some tension there that we need to keep in mind, that we should be lovingly instructing each other and calling each other out into deeper waters of freedom. But for me, that third question is the hard one. I don't know about for you. I do hope that you've reflected on those and had a meaningful experience with that reflection. And I really hope that you'll share that with somebody this week. It truly does make it stick more when you, um, when you can share that experience you have with the Holy Spirit with somebody else. So I encourage you to do that. Let me say a brief prayer for our community before we conclude our service with communion and one last song. God, help us to be more loving and less concerned with knowledge. Speak to each of us about our own lives and ways that we might consider making changes out of love for our siblings in the family of God. And then give us the strength to do it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.